I sit down with Colonel Chris Hadfield, the first Canadian commander of the International Space Station. To explore these questions, I'm joined by Schumann Kosmogender. Schumann is the global head of artificial intelligence at F5 Networks. Dr. Farah Alibay was born in Canada and grew up in a small town where working at NASA was unheard of, but she's doing exactly that now. Today, we can take in the wise words of Haley Wickenheiser, the four-time Olympic gold medalist, community leader, history maker. I sought the advice of Canada's 18th prime minister, the right honorable Brian Mulroney. Hey, I'm Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. Two years ago, we started having conversations about risk. We've talked about finance, education, climate, healthcare, privacy, and so much more. We've had incredible guests who have talked us through the systems, communities, and behaviors that have been particularly challenged in recent times. After two seasons of shows, looking at all types of risk, we're going to take a break for a while. But before that, I wanna look back on some of my favorite conversations through this series. So the next four episodes will be a little different to what you're used to. We're going to bring together some of our best bits. Today, we're going to reflect on what it means when you're in the business of risk. Risk is ubiquitous. And based on one's tolerance level, you can either accept it, try to mitigate it, or just pretend it's not even there. Most of us want to control it as much as possible. While you can't control everything, there certainly is the potential to reduce both the possibility of risk occurring and its potential impact. Having some risk management strategies in place can help identify, assess, and even resolve risks. Cyber risk events can pose financial, personal, societal, and even geopolitical challenges. Schumann Gosmagender, one of the top innovators from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, is optimistic that cybersecurity can keep pace with the evolving threats. Haley Wickenheiser sees another pandemic that the world is at risk of experiencing and understands, as both an Olympic athlete and a doctor, that physical exercise might just be the vaccine we need. Our 18th Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Brian Mulroney, knows all too well that a good reputation takes decades to build and can be lost in minutes. Colonel Chris Hatfield, the first Canadian commander of the International Space Station, and Dr. Farah Alibay identify the risks of flying into deadly odds with nothing but a plan. So I wanted to start with, with you as, as a young child. You you wanted to be an astronaut. So does that mean you were born with the right stuff? Did you always know that you had it? Or what, what, or what, what's the situation there? Everybody's wired differently. You know, nature versus nurture. I, I think everybody either intuitively or obviously knows that. But um, part of who you are is just how your particular plumbing and, and wiring uh, all, all was, was laid down. But as far as is what uh, Tom Wolfe and yourself called the right stuff. I, I was always fascinated and driven by sort of the unknown and, and things that we could maybe not do or just barely do. And I'm, I'm always intensely curious about understanding how and why things happen and how do things actually work. 
And then you actually have people getting into human-made machines and leaving the planet and going all the way to try and do something as unbelievable and yet barely attainable as walking on the moon. All of that just took my my particular protoplasm and said, boy, that's what you want to do. And, and so it really was a combination of the environment I was raised in and my particular sense of wonder, I think. You, you've put in so many hours and just so much intention uh, into it as well, though, right? I mean, it's not all, obviously, it's not just uh, what, what you're born with. It's an interesting thought in that by doing just that, but by giving yourself uh, a goal, no matter how improbable, and then starting to invest your own time in it, you are taking a risk. You know, you, if, if you said, I want to climb Mount Everest and I'm going to start working on it, or I want to be a brain surgeon, or, or I want to be the prime minister or whatever, I want to be a, an Olympic athlete, you're actually risking your time here on this earth uh, in pursuit of something may never happen. And, and so you really need as a recognition of risk to first truly establish within yourself, well, what is worth taking a risk for? And to me, it was hardly even a question. Then you start actually making life decisions based on it. And you're, you're, you're truly just sort of uh, risking your own sense of accomplishment, risking the path of your own life. And so I, I, I think you can't just ignore that. You know, I trained most of my life to be able to do that, uh, especially in Russian. You know, first I had to learn all about the atmosphere and then about hypersonic aerodynamics and, and, and how you fly a blunt body through the atmosphere. What are the, what's the control theory of it? And then, and then practice in so many different simulators because it doesn't fly intuitively. Uh, you know, it's like surfing a bathtub, you know, under wicked, you know, hurricane conditions. And all of those things are conspiring to kill you. But once you've figured it all out and learned the language of the vehicle, both technical and, and just uh, linguistically, to then be able to do it, to get into that machine and be orbiting the world at eight kilometers a second, and then you, along with the, the two crew members you're with, be able to do the mechanical things to then accomplish something that otherwise would be absolutely impossible, to be surrounded by flame at 3000 degrees and, and crush down into your seat. And yet you're piloting this thing and you land it within a, a few hundred meters uh, of where, uh, where your rescue crews are standing. It's, it's a, it's a triumph. So, so yeah, um, some risks are really worth taking. You're both so inspir inspirational, honestly. Um, Farah, you've had to work differently with your team this time around though, because of COVID. So what has, uh, what has that been like uh, executing this mission in the time of a pandemic? And what have you learned about being a good team member uh, under these public health restrictions? Yeah, it has been interesting, right? So it's crazy because yesterday was our anniversary of our, the stay at home order here. So um, and I, I remember March of last year. Um, I had gone climbing in the Sierras. The Sierras are the in the mountains here in in Southern California, and I came back to LA. You know, I was climbing all weekend, no signal, no nothing, and then I come back to LA, and and there's no one on the freeway. Which, if you've ever been to LA, that never happens. Uh, it is literally the apocalypse. And and we get this email from work saying, "Hey, don't come in tomorrow." 
Now, March of 2020, we were, you know, four or five months away from launching this rover. We had shipped the rover already from here, uh, from California all the way to Kennedy Space Center, which is where it was getting launched. And a lot of us were due to fly out to Florida to support activities. We were all planning this big party for the launch and, and to be together. And all of a sudden, they're like, nope, you're doing your work from home. And uh, and by the way, this is a planetary deadline because you can only launch to Mars every 26 months. So we still got to go. You still have to make this. Um, but somehow reinvent the way you work. So, um, you know, I the, the name Perseverance for the rover was, was announced in February of 2020. And, and when it was announced, all I remember saying is, wow, that's really hard to spell. <laughs> Why is it so long? And and never has a name become so important and so representative of what our team did. It's bad enough that our personal relationships, work schedules, and business decisions often rely on technological tools that can then open the door to hackers and provide easy access to sensitive info. But in our talk with Schumann Gosmajunder, you'll hear that organizations are exposed to a range of cyber risks, from data theft and ransomware to corporate espionage. And what's worse is they may not even know about it. So let's talk about cybersecurity at a personal level and, and, and the risks that an individual uh, can bear. Uh, as a result of even just using their phone. Now, I'll start with a very dramatic example. And if you look at the case of Jamal Khashoggi, you know, he was, his conversations were monitored through a Canadian citizen, his communications with a Canadian citizen. Um, and it was the Canadian citizen's phone who that was uh, compromised, that, that created this portal to Khashoggi and rendered him a target. Yeah. So, 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 so when we, when we think about that, that level of personal risk, so, so, so we started with, you know, the financial, which is, you know, can very quickly also become personal risk and, and can, and it can become economic risk. And then we talked about the, the geopolitical risk side of it. Uh, when, when we see nation states and state actors, you know, uh, leveraging uh, cybersecurity and, and using it as a weapon, as opposed to, to a defense. But, but what about that personal level of risk? You know, that, that's an example of a nation state um, get, getting involved. But how much risk do, do we all carry around in our pockets? You know, it's a great example of that network effect of um, having many different parts of a technology stack that can each create the opportunity for vulnerabilities and and compromises so in the case of people communicating with each other over text or over email i think one of the most obvious things that people often don't think about is that whenever you send a text message or send an email there are two copies of that at least there's what you sent and then there's the recipient's inbox that now has the exact copy of, of the same content. And so either of those accounts can get compromised and the uh, attacker is now going to have access to that data. But there are many other points along that communication that could also create the opportunity for that data to be intercepted. So you know, let's say that your email account wasn't compromised, your phone could still be compromised. 
the recipient's phone could still be compromised. The network, which is used to be able to transmit that data, could be compromised. Your home Wi-Fi router could be compromised. You could have, as I said before, a completely unrelated hack on a system that has nothing to do with the recipient's email, where the recipient has used the same password as they used for their email account that now allows their email account and your emails that you've sent them to be compromised. So thinking through this network of interconnectedness is beyond the scope of any consumer to uh, figure out how to be able to fully secure all of this data and all of these communications. I mentioned that accepting risk can be a choice, and specifically in some who like to embrace it head on. You can see why a former ice hockey player, physician, and head of player development for the Toronto Maple Leafs, Haley Wickenheiser, might see risk as a tool in her professional you know, toolbox. Old discussion, and it's the subject of this podcast is risk. So I want to ask you about your your thoughts on risk. You you had um, discussed it a little bit um, in your diary leading up to the to the Vancouver games, um, following the uh, the tragic death of the Georgian loser. Um, that that you know you you reflected a bit on on the risks uh, of your own sport. Can can you share your thoughts with us? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I, I suppose in, in life in general, I'm sort of moderately risky, slightly risky in, in medicine. I'm, I'm very risk adverse. I wouldn't say that I, I would practice medicine as a cowboy at all. I think it's, it's always about patient care, but, but then I look at myself as an athlete and I think, oh, I'm, I go for it. Like I'm totally risky. I think throw caution into the wind. And so it's just interesting how when you float through different aspects of your life, you have sort of different tolerances to risk. And, uh, you know, right now, even looking at, you know, the vaccine and just people sort of thinking around risk tolerance with getting AstraZeneca, it's fascinating to hear people sort of ration why they, they would or wouldn't get it and what their risk tolerance might be. So I think we all have our sort of own inner barometer. And for me, um, I think I'm, I'm calculated. So I, I tend to kind of go through all the steps and, um, and if I feel like, you know, the, the, you know, the odds are good and I can, can execute the way I want it. I'm generally a person that will go for it, um, and, and not sit back, but, um, certainly not without sort of making a calculated, calculated thought. However, as a hockey player, I feel like I was a good, good at what I did and had success because I often threw caution to the wind and just went for it. I, I tended not to, um, be a rule follower in the sense of abiding just to strict systems on the ice and things like this. So I used intuition and I used, uh, you know, um, kind of my senses versus logic. And so it depends on what, what area of life, but, um, far more, you know, the thrill of going forward is certainly what I like to do. I just need to be in a position where I feel like I'm prepared to do it. So that's kind of how I look at risk. And, and, uh, I guess everybody has their own sort of, uh, barometer for that. When we think of government and political risks, we usually associate those with capitals, army barracks, party headquarters. But these days, politics is played almost everywhere. In the cloud, in chat rooms, dorms, bars. Let's just say the arena has no walls. So it's even more important to have a strategy in place to adjust on impact. 
Our former prime minister, Brian Mulroney, knows just how agile you've got to be. Your writings reminded me of Dalton Camp. And Dalton Camp, for those listeners who, who don't recall, he championed uh, party leadership reviews. Those were not a thing prior to Dalton Camp suggesting that one happened uh, in the context of when uh, Diefenbaker was leading uh, the party. And while, I mean, as party leadership reviews are still a part of party politics, um, but following that, he was made a pariah within his own party. And when, at least for a, brief, for a period of time, and when I was reflecting on that, it, it made me want to ask you, what is the relationship between the issues you champion and your reputation? How do you how do you navigate um, uh, championing the right things, but knowing that there might be a personal cost to it? Yeah, well, uh, Dalton brought in and campaigned on the leadership renewal votes in 1965 and uh, irritated uh, Diefenbaker no end. And Diefenbaker did set out to make him a pariah. And he succeeded in that. I uh, brought him uh, back in out of the cold. Dalton was an old friend of mine, a very, very talented guy. And uh, I brought him into the Privy Council as senior advisor to the Prime Minister. Now, he had some difficulties because he did not know at the time that he should have had a heart transplant, which he did uh, just as I was leaving office. And that impaired his effectiveness a great deal, as, well, as you might imagine. So, and, and that was the case of uh, Dalton. Uh, with regard to policies, you have to folk remember the following thing, Joey. History only has time for the big ticket items. History has no time for the trivia and the trash around question period and floating around the rumors of the House of Commons. So once you've identified the risk, Instinct wants you to immediately find an appropriate solution. But before you try to figure out how best to handle it, you'll likely have to locate, assess, and find a way to deal with the damage and the challenges. On this one, I leaned on all of my guests to share a lived experience where they had to think on their feet, decide what was needed, and just how much work had to be done. Back to my conversation with Chris Hadfield. I think the other thing that really struck me, you know, watching your videos and, and reading reading your books is that you you have the superior ability to uh, tease out all the, the different risks that are in front of you. And I love the example that you gave of um, finding um, a friend uh, in your helmet while you were uh, flying in formation. And I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about that and what was going through your mind and, and how did you make the choices that, that, that you made in terms of focus and attention? 
Sure. I think at most at some point in their life, most people have watched um, an, an aerobatic team, multiple airplanes, you know, like uh, the Snowbirds or the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds or the Red Arrows or somebody where there are multiple jets flying what seems to be unbelievably closely to each other and, and doing aerobatics with smoke coming out the back as as sort of a demonstration of human ability and, and something improbably beautiful. I don't know how many people, when they watch that, think about the, the human beings inside. They're just folks, you know, just, just people, uh, women and, and men, uh, just uh, with their hands in the controls, doing all the tiny necessary things that allow those machines to, to do what we're all watching. And every single one of those people, you know, had dinner last night and maybe, you know, had their sleep interrupted and who knows, they woke up with a headache or uh, they're having trouble with their family or, or who knows, you know, they're just people. And when I was training as a military pilot relatively early on, I had to learn those skills. How do you fly in formation? It's a necessary thing. For example, if you're going to come down through cloud, you have to be able to be on somebody else's wing in order to stay together while, while you can't see very far or, or whatever. There's lots of reasons to fly in formation. So one of the things I was doing was a four plane. So if you hold up your, your hand with your fingertips sticking up, you can see there's your, your middle finger sticks out the furthest. And then the other three, there's one on one side and two on the other. Um, if you can imagine each of those fingertips being an airplane, we call that finger four. And if you're the ring finger, then you have an airplane on one side and an airplane on the other side. And, and so you really don't have a lot of freedom of movement as the ring finger. What do you do if you sneeze or if, if something, you know, you, uh, yeah, something happens that you have a momentary lapse of attention? You really have to be focused. And the instance you're referring to, Jody, I was in that position in, in a, just south of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, in our little Tudor jet, same airplane as a snowbird's fly. And uh, I was wearing my helmet because you have to in one of those airplanes with an oxygen mask. And my visor was down, the big sort of clamshell visor that rotates down in front of my eyes. And as I was in formation, looking at my lead, um, at his airplane, um, I saw an insect crawling on my visor. And it was sort of uh, out of focus because I was, you know, my eyes were looking at the other airplane. But then as the insect slowly walked across, I realized, wow, that's, that's a bee. That's a, like a big bumblebee. And, and it's right there. And then I'm thinking, huh, is it on the inside or the outside of my visor? And I realized, well, it's on the inside of my visor. It's, it's just a, a centimeter from my right eyeball right now. So what do you do next? And that's really the very essence of risk is what do you do next? And you're always constrained. And how well prepared are you for that moment? The natural reaction there would be to go ah, and flail and you know, try and knock that insect away. It's what, it's what we've needed for hundreds of thousands of years because insects can, can not just hurt us, but carry bad pestilence. But I had to completely ignore my instinctive reaction because the actual threat was much higher from the airplane on my left and my right than was the bee in front of my eye. The bee hadn't done anything except exist. It wasn't stinging me. And in fact, when I thought about it, I'm up at altitude. The air's thinner. The bee's probably feeling pretty groggy, you know, doesn't have enough oxygen in its little bee body. So it's just trying to hang on and figure out what's going on as well. So I just 
stayed in formation until we got into a stable position where we were sort of straight and level. And I said, hey, flight, I got to leave the formation for a minute. He said, okay. And I pulled up and out and then up with my visor and try to chase the bee around the cockpit and, and you know, get get uh, get that threat where it was proportionate. And then once I had the, the bee, unfortunately deceased, um, put my visor back down and then back into formation and, and continue with the training. So I, I think sometimes the hierarchy of risk and recognizing that you have to uh, put the mission and the, the proportion of risk in the right order in order to have the correct reaction or, or something that will in fact do more harm than, than what seemed to be the highest priority danger to you at that time. Schumann, you mentioned a widening attack surface. Can you please explain what you mean by that? Sure. So in a cybersecurity context, whenever there is a new opportunity to be able to create some type of uh, hack or to be able to identify a new type of vulnerability that can be exploited, that's what we refer to as an attack surface. So if a company launches a new website, that's a new attack surface. That's a new way into their data store. That's a new way into their user information. And if you want to remove that attack surface entirely, the only way to do that is to shut down that particular website or application. And so instead of doing that, because of course, shutting down that attack surface would have implications in terms of that company's ability to do business, what you want to do is secure that attack surface. Now, of course, you don't want to have redundant attack surfaces or have uh, uh, duplication in terms of if you could do something with one particular website, you don't want to have 10 different websites that do exactly the same thing because then any security vulnerability that exists in any of those attack surfaces creates the opportunity to be attacked that uh, you don't need to have. So you might consolidate multiple websites that do the same thing into a single website, thereby reducing your attack surface, and then try and protect that attack surface as effectively as you can. Thanks to a recent Google study conducted to understand what its best teams had in common, the term psychological safety has gained popularity. Studies show that psychological safety is vital to success in uncertain environments. The brain can process a provocation in a procedure, a health or social event, as a life or death threat. An alarm bell goes off in the brain, igniting fight or flight response. Sometimes this can shut down perspective and analytical reasoning. Quite literally, just when we need it most, we lose our minds. I couldn't help but wonder how our next guest's mental health fared in these risky fields. Haley, Farah, and Mr. Mulrooney explained. Speaking of psychology, I want to talk to you about expectations because surely you, as, as a Canadian, you, you're probably, you know, one of the few uh, small number of Canadians who, who have carried such big expectations uh, on their shoulders. I wanted to ask you, what, what's your advice around expectations? Well, I think I would say, pre- you know, as pressure is a privilege that, you know, people wouldn't ask you to do something or be something if they didn't believe that you could actually do it. And so um, one of the things, you know, one of the, the, 
the kind of moments that illustrates that was the Vancouver Olympics in 2010, where, you know, the media, again, back to this media and psychology, they, they kept talking to a lot of Olympic athletes in the country and, oh, you know, the, the way of the nation, are you sure you can perform in your own country? And it's like, you know, do you want your athletes to perform or not? But it's all the self-perpetuating like negativity that we can be as Canadians is, you know, oh, do you think you can really do it? And so as a team, we just decided like, we're going to flip the narrative uh, to not, you know, the weight of the nation on top of us, but rather the weight of the nation behind us, pushing us forward as the seventh man in the stand, so to speak, sort of propelling us, 35 million people behind us, uh, not pushing us down. And not, not one Canadian would hopefully want us to lose. They all want us to win, of course, but so I think it's the way in which you think about pressure and expectations, and we can sometimes see that as a burden, or we can see it as, wow, people really believe in us to get the job done, so let's get it done. And so then my second thought around expectations is the only thing that I can control is my ability to prepare for to perform, and then I have to be able to let it go. Uh, the rest is, is out of my control. And so I always believed as an athlete, um, when I stepped on any into any gold medal final at the Olympic Games, I, I had this, uh, you know, inevitably a couple of days before the Olympic gold medal final, I was like a nervous wreck. And I'd be like, oh, my God, if we lose and I'd go through this sort of catastrophizing mentality. And then I, I would let myself like catastrophize for an hour. And then I would say, OK, for the rest of the day, you're just going to not think about it. And then as we creep closer to the gold medal day, it was a weird thing where I would ultimately be become kind of stressed to like super calm because I truly believed deep down that I had done everything I humanly could to be prepared for that moment. And all I had to do was perform and the rest was kind of out of my control. And so it was a way for me to kind of control what I could and to, to sort of manage those expectations. And I feel the same way in medicine where, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot I know now, but there's still so much that I don't know and so the only thing I can do is prepare to do my best and I have to just continually evolve and be okay with failing along the way and failing forward, so to speak. And so that's kind of how I, how I see it. And, uh, and I believe that, uh, that my preparation has really kind of helped me manage those through the years, but also the mentality of uh, glass half full sort of thinking versus a burden is something that's much healthier to be able to manage. Um, so I want to pick up on something uh, that you said earlier, Farah, and it's and it's echoes of Chris in my head. Why, why why I'm asking this, and that's you said when you're preparing. Part of those when you're playing in that sandbox uh, to prepare, you plan for the worst. And I asked Chris this question uh, on another time that that we had chatted, and I want to ask you: How do you remain optimistic though when you're thinking about all the things that can go wrong? <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, because we've planned for the things that we can go wrong, that's that's how you remain optimistic, right? I think I think as engineers, it's our job to understand the the risks that we're buying into. Um, so for every activity, we think, okay, well, it's gonna this is how we've designed it. It's mostly gonna go this way. Um, but let me think through all the possible things that can go wrong, and then some of them are outside of your control. There's nothing you can do about them, right? So um, if you're on your way to Mars and a mega meteorite hits you that's bigger than you expected it to, well, it's, the odds of that happening are so small that you can't plan against everything. Um, so you take you take the big things, the big risks, and you worry about those and you try and reduce those. 
um, and and you do your best to be ready for the things. But you also there's I I've learned from from this experience that you can't be in control of everything, and that that's something that took me a while. I'm very much like I like being in control of my life, right? But you can't you can't be in control of everything. The odds of getting a global pandemic, right? Like it's not something that you plan for. It happens, and then you're like, well, got to deal with it, right? And 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 we deal with what we can. Parliament by Zoom is, uh, I don't think, what. well, I think people are relieved that the work of government can continue even in as serious a pandemic as we're in, but it's it's just not the same. I don't think anyone thinks it's as good as everyone being in the same room together. Well, I agree, Jody. And moreover, for example, for, for a new leader of the opposition like Aaron O'Toole, this has been a catastrophe for him because as the new leader of the opposition, you can bend the house is not sitting. You, can't, you cannot maintain a sustained attack on the prime minister or the government. Uh, you can't go out and glad hand across the streets. You can't hold political rallies. Uh, and so you're confronted by prime minister who stands in front of his home and doles out large amounts of money for every part of society. That's, that's, that's a pretty tough uh, battle to win. So I think that in recent years, in the last year and a half or two years, it's been you know very, very unsettling to, to be anything other than a government me- member because it's very, very hard to score a point on the floor of the House of Commons when most of the times it's not sitting and when it does sit, there are very few people there. And the prime minister can come and go as he pleases. Most of all, he prefers to go. So it's hard to maintain an attack against the government for whatever reason. Uh, so I think that the it has not been kind to opposition leaders uh, in the last year and a half. Oftentimes, risk assessment is shunned because maybe people assume that you can't avert risk events. But some prefer to have a strategy to not only mitigate present challenges, but to help identify future risks. The tricky part can be to find a way that doesn't negatively impact performance. It's all a fine dance that involves the effective use of risk so management. Another kind of risk trap that I wanted to get get your take on, and that is sometimes we will have invested so much time or energy or planning or um, uh, money. We've invest, sometimes we'll have invested money, and we'll get to the and and we'll reach a point where, you know, maybe maybe it was planning a big family event, maybe it's going out on a boat, and you see the storm clouds and you think, wow, you know, like I, you know, the forecast isn't, isn't very good, but you know, I've already got everybody here and the, the tank is full of gas and, you know, uh, everybody will be so disappointed if, if we call this, this trip off. Um, but, but astronauts and pilots, they, they, they have tools that help them resist that temptation to take on, uh, perhaps a risk that, that, that is too large. And, and I was hoping you, 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 could, you could share your insights around flight rules and, and how you've used them in your life. Sure. Well, part of that is don't fall in love with your mission or, or don't fall in love with your old life like, or fall in love with your plan. 
You know, if, if you absolutely fall in love with your plan having to unfold in the way that it unfolded yesterday or the way it unfolded in your dreams, then you're just setting yourself up for, for disappointment. I mean, the best you can do is match it. You're not even going to be able to exceed it. So I, I think it's good to, to give yourself a plan. Hey, this is what I'm planning to do. You know, we're all going to go out in the boat and it's going to be great. And we're all going to catch big fish or we're all going to water ski or whatever. But then go, okay, well, that was just the framework. This, these were the kind of my intended things to do today. But let's see what really happens. And let's be uh, spontaneous enough to react or, or let's be flexible enough to go, hey, I didn't know that was going to happen, but it was pretty funny or, or, or that was even more memorable. Um, but then what do you do when, when things are going wrong and, and it's kind of overwhelming? If you're doing something very consequential, then you have uh, a, a purpose in mind. And it's really good to not only uh, have sort of a plan of how you're going to accomplish that purpose, but also when things were quiet, to have built yourself a, a set of, of boundaries and, and uh, rules, you could call them. And uh, in, in, as a test pilot, we, we say that is plan the flight and then fly the plan. You know, this is not a time to, to be exuberant, try stuff you weren't thinking about. And as an astronaut, it becomes even more strict. And we have a thing called flight rule. It, it is endless, endless pages of lessons learned. And a lot of them were learned in, in a nice, quiet set of contemplated, very well-informed, very democratic circumstances. Like on launch day, if this type of weather occurs, what is the right thing to do? Because on launch day, everybody just wants to launch. That's the wrong time to start thinking about the actual risk. And you need where you possibly can to have thought about it um, quietly and authoritatively in advance. But if even Jeff Bezos can, you know, have his uh, have his system compromised, how safe are we? Well, you know, the, there are different levels of uh, attack that uh, uh, I think disproportionately affect different uh, uh, segments of the population. So if you're Jeff Bezos or, you know, you're the president of the United States or, uh, you know, the uh, 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 CEO or, or CIO of uh, uh, another public company, then you might be singled out and, and you are often singled out for compromise by a variety of different attackers. And so there are specific things that they need to think about in terms of information security, as well as physical security, of course, uh, in order to function in their roles. But when you think about the average consumer, they often thought there's nothing special about me. There's no reason that I need to worry about security to the same extent. And that's definitely true from the perspective of Cyber criminals don't care about the identity of an individual random consumer uh, in the population. But technology now allows them to be able to target thousands or millions of those consumers at scale while not caring about them as individuals. And what that means is that we are now bombarded with attacks constantly. So you look at the amount of uh, spam that you get in uh, your spam uh, uh, folder. You, you look at 
phishing emails that you get. And, uh, you know, there are so many such schemes that are basically just numbers games. They're, they're trying to send those initial emails out to millions of people around the world. Then a subset of those recipients are going to respond to the email. And then only a small subset of those are going to take the scheme to its, uh, its end and actually uh, send money to uh, the criminals that are trying to, to steal. We have to think about how do we protect society as a whole against that instead of thinking about, you know, what do we do as individuals necessarily? And so, you know, how, what that translates to is greater education, greater, um, you know, thoughtfulness about uh, what services and platforms do we use? What, what are their attitudes when it comes to security and privacy and uh, you know, that ultimately, I think, translates into brand. So when you've got companies that have uh, a strong track record of investing in security and investing in privacy, those uh, are, are going to uh, benefit in the long term. So getting back to what you're saying about your role in planning, Farah, what is the role of planning in success? Sometimes we hear these stories, you know, about, um, you know, in the tech world, for example, it's about moving fast and it's about breaking things. Um, we, don't often, we don't necessarily hear as much about planning. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, it's not so much about moving fast and breaking things when you're on Mars, right? Like you don't have that luxury. It's the same, you know, anything that's space related. Once you're out there, there's no, you know, there's, there's no way to fix your, your rover. There's no way to fix your spacecraft. Uh, if it's on Mars. Um, so we work very, very differently, right? So in, in development, of course, we move fast, we try, we test, we test all over again, uh, and we test our designs. But when it comes to operations, it's, it's again about testing, but it's definitely about preparation, right? We will, I always say that once we do something on Mars, it's almost boring because we've done it like a million times on Earth before we do it on Mars, right? And we, we have, for example, a replica of Perseverance called Optimism. And we have a big, um, what we call a Mars yard. It's a big sandbox, essentially, when we drive around our rover and, um, and we put it through its spaces, like, like deploying the Ingenuity helicopter. That's the next big thing that's going to be happening. I've tested it at least 20 times in the Mars yard, right? And, and we test it over and over. Um, so that's, that's what preparation looks like is, is we build our activities, we test them. Um, we, we put it through all of the off nominal scenarios that we think might happen on Mars and we make sure that we're robust against them. And then we do it on Mars and, and it depends. It still doesn't look like the way we want it to, but most of the time when things go wrong, we kind of expected it and know how to react. And if we don't, we can pause. And um, that's kind of one of the advantages of being on the surface of another planet rather than orbiting somewhere or going somewhere is if something goes wrong, the rover knows how to, has some automation. It knows how to react. It, you know, goes into what we call a safe mode and calls home and then, and then we're there to fix it. So it's definitely about preparation. It's about expect planning for the worst also uh, and being prepared for anomalies. I uh, was getting texts from a lot of my friends across the country saying, you know, we're going to run out, we're going to run out of PPE. Like we don't have any. I think the only province that was actually really prepared was Alberta because one of their purchasers thought ahead and, and actually uh, procured enough PPE. So Alberta ended up shipping stuff to Ontario eventually. But um, 
you know, it was like, how can this be? We're a first world country here. Uh, we're, we're a half, like, how can this be? And I'm in the hospital. And I literally one day went to find an N95 mask to see a patient. I couldn't. And I, and I sort of was living it as well. And uh, so um, I just sent out a tweet to say, like, we need PPE like this, you know, and now we know that PPE is saving lives and it's incredible uh, what the PPE has done. Otherwise we'd all have COVID because we're all around COVID patients. And so um, we just, I just sent this tweet, Brian Reynolds um, texted me a few minutes later and said, Hey, would you like me to amplify this? And the rest is kind of history. So we, we worked with this amazing group, Conquer COVID, and we procured, uh, I, I guess we gave out 3 million items of PPE and raised about $3 million in eight weeks um, to 500 locations across Canada. And so uh, I know looking back now that that campaign and, and those 200 volunteers or so that banded together, they doctors and med students and business people, good Samaritans. Um, I think they saved a lot of lives doing what they did uh, early on, especially in Ontario. You know, the best shot is the first shot that you can get into your arm and, um, and sort of dispel a lot of myths and also put pressure on all of our political leaders to move as fast as possible to get people vaccinated. So um, it's been a whirlwind of a year for sure when I look back, but um, I guess I just sort of fell into it of genuine care and concern for what I was seeing on the front line, sort of. There was still good debate, but that, you know, there was a whole of Canada approach behind it. Well, I was invited, as, as you know, by the prime minister to come to cabinet. First time in Canadian history that a former conservative prime minister progressive conservative prime minister met with a liberal cabinet to deal with a matter of huge substance. And that was the renewal of NAFTA. And when it was over, I was asked by the media, well, you know, prime minister, what are you doing? And with a bunch of liberals there in the cabinet chamber uh, on this uh, renegotiation. And my response was, there is no conservative or liberal way to renegotiate NAFTA. There's only a Canadian way. And I'm there because I'm a Canadian. And so are our members of the government. We're all in this together. This is one of those rare occasions in life where partisanship uh, yields only hardship. But cooperation can mean victory. And victory applies to all Canadians, liberals, NDP, conservative, whatever. Masks may be coming off, but we are very much still in the denouement, hopefully, of a global pandemic. As a society, we are in a state where humanity has not only been exposed to risk, but has had to assess it on cue, embrace it, manage it, and currently live without fear in order that we might move on as a society. To that, I say, brava. Give yourself a pat on the shoulder. In addition to my praise, I thought I'd leave you with some inspiring words of wisdom from these experts on how to continue to endure in the new normal. I don't like feeling afraid and and tensed up and worried. Uh, I think that's bad for your health. I, I also think you miss what's happening when you're all super scared and worried. You're, you're so focused on uh, your own um, queasy stomach and, and uncertainty that you don't notice the beauty and, and the um, magnificence of what's going on past you. If, if a graveyard terrifies you, 
you probably never see just how beautiful a graveyard is. You know, they're lovely manicured, and sometimes there are graves there. There's so much history, and there are trees that have been undisturbed for centuries, and, and there's often a magnificent building in a graveyard, and, and, and life is like that also. So I think the acknowledgement of the actual danger is far better than a perpetual, nervous, sweaty fear of an unspoken risk or an unspoken danger. I, I, you know, it, it removes stress from your life to acknowledge the risk and then gain the skills to deal with it so that you're always not just whistling past the graveyard in everything that you do. Schumann, the central question of this podcast is, do you truly value something if you're not thinking about how you could lose it? What's your perspective? I think it's really difficult for people in general to place security or privacy at the top of their list of concerns in life or in any uh, business transaction, unless they've had some kind of personal experience that illustrates for them the downside of not having security or privacy protected. Uh, you look at identity theft, for example, and people behave very differently when they've been the victim of identity theft and they've been unable to get credit as a result of their identity being stolen than if that's simply something they've read about that affects somebody else. It's fairly similar to uh, the way that people think about their health and their diet before they've had some kind of a, a major health scare versus afterwards. And so I think that what we have the opportunity to do is create much greater education so that people can learn from the bad experiences. Where does the belief in yourself come from? Oh, that's a good question. Well, so I think for me, you know, working at NASA, as you mentioned, it's not something that was really ever heard of. And, and it's not something that I grew up thinking I could do. It's not like I knew someone that worked at NASA growing up. Um, but I was, as I was growing up, I, I became more and more interested in space. I, that's, that's what I loved. And that's what I was curious about. That's what I was interested in. And, and I was always sort of going around the house basically breaking things, taking things apart, trying to understand how they work and then not really putting them back together, uh, much to my parents' dismay. And, and that dream of working at NASA just kept growing. Uh, and one day I think I just realized, well, you know, yeah, sure, there isn't that many people that work there, but someone's got to work there and why shouldn't it be me? Um, and so, and I think part of me also always thought I, that I was always going to regret it if I didn't apply, if I didn't at least try, give it my best shot, right? And that's kind of how I live my life. It's not so much that I'll know where it's going to end up, um, but, at, but I, you know, I've applied. I remember before I got my first NASA internship, I probably applied to like 50 internships before someone said yes, right? But that's the whole point is it only takes one yes. It only takes one success. Doesn't matter how often you fall to get there. Um, so I don't know if it was so much belief in myself as much as sort of stubbornness and determination to keep trying until someone gave me the opportunity. Um, and that's that's how I got where I am. I would have to think that your experience of playing hockey, which certainly at the time when you were getting started and being successful, um, was you know very much a male-dominated sport, both in terms of 
who played it, who gets the money, and even just, you know, the media who are covering it. So how, how has that shaped your, your views around, you know, what's important and, and what it means to be a good team member? Well, for sure. I mean, I, I guess, um, you know, I started, well, it's kind of crazy now. It's like 30, 35 years ago, I started playing hockey. But, um, you know, my life was spent mostly growing up, listening to people say, you don't belong, do something else. There's no future for you. You'll never make any money doing this. If I didn't have uh, two parents that believed that a girl could do anything a boy could do and uh, kind of a village in my small town of Shawnee, Saskatchewan that I grew up in, I had a community there that just kind of propped me up all along the way, whether it was my neighborhood or people in the local rink, they they saw that I had ability and, and they never put barriers up for me. And I was lucky. I was lucky to have that support, I think, when I look back because I developed a ability to not listen to the critical opinion of others for whatever reason. And, and also combined with the love, um, that I have for, for the game and for sport that just kind of propelled me forward. But sometimes, you know, today people will say, well, you know, aren't you bitter that if you were a male equivalent, you'd be making $10 million a year. And, and I say, no, you know what, it is what it is. I'm proud that, you know, where we are, for example, in women's hockey has advanced to the point where most of the players on the national team today can make a living. And, uh, there's no doubt. I think that women are at a disadvantage in many walks of life. Um, but it's important for, for women as, as role models, those that have kind of survived and made it through and are in positions of leadership to, I think, to give back to mentor. And I really appreciate that for even in medicine, when I get to have an opportunity to work with female physicians, um, that can mentor me and teach me. I mean, when I look back and I've had amazing mentors, but there's six women that have really kind of gotten me through medicine. And so we have to all kind of mentor and advocate for each other. So obviously your daughter has joined political life and she's serving uh, the province of Ontario. What advice did you give her about public life? If you want to do it, dear, be yourself. Be yourself. Just that never compromise your principles or your values. Look after your constituency first and foremost, uh, up about an hour north of Toronto, that's Simcoe. Look after your constituents, make certain that you're one of the survivors in the next election, whatever that is. And while, if you're called upon to serve as a minister, um, do, do the legwork. Do the tough things to make certain that you you have a commanding knowledge of your department. She has two, Department of Transportation and the Minister des Affaires Francophones, So she has two widely divergent uh, portfolios, and she works very, very hard at them and tries to move the collective agenda forward. And I'm very very proud of her, what she does. Thank you to everyone who's joined us on these episodes. A huge personal shout out to Colonel Chris Hadfield, who has enormously advanced my thinking, and to Dan Gardner, who really introduced me to the concept of risk and how our minds work well, or maybe not work so well when it comes to dealing with risk. There were so many great conversations in both seasons that we've got three more wrap-up episodes on the way. 
look out for the second episode of this four-part mini-series. We'll be getting into all of the risks that our healthcare system has taken on and the heroic folks that stand firm for us during these challenging times. Thanks to my production team on these recordings, to Aisha Jera and Camille Hemming for compiling these, and of course you, our faithful listeners. Be sure to share this if you seek to inspire other purpose-filled risk takers. Subscribe to Canada 2020 at risk and find even more amazing stories. Schumann, thank you so much for spending time with me and for, for enriching us all and giving us our initial education lesson in cybersecurity. Appreciate it. Congratulations, sir. I'm just so proud of what you folks are doing. Please tell your whole team if anybody knows uh, knows my name, but tell them I'm just so fascinated and excited and proud of what everybody's doing, and, and you especially. Nice to talk to you with you today. Thank you so much, Haley. Thank you for all of your leadership and the inspiration that you've been providing to the country for so many years and continue to do so in what is a, a really difficult moment and we'll all be sure to go get our shot. I really appreciate what you have to say about big ticket items and being ambitious and I think that's a great message uh, for Canada coming out of uh, these difficult pandemic times. Thank you so much for sharing them with me. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jody. My very best to your family and to all your listeners.